Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we welcome the return of New York newspaper The Village Voice, plus a visit to award-winning Danish broadsheet Weekend Davison, and finally some media insights with Jim Bilton. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, Gabriele Delisanti visits the newsroom of Danish newspaper Weekend Davison. Plus, Jean Bilton from Westenden is here to share some insights about print media. But we start the show in New York, with the exciting returning print of The Village Voice, the iconic alternative paper based in the city. Founded back in 1955, the newspaper is back. Its latest print issue was back in 2017, actually. To mark the relaunch, I had the pleasure to speak with R.C. Baker, managing editor of The Village Voice. I started The Village Voice in 1987, actually. And I started out as an ad proofreader. And I eventually moved more into production, designing ads, preparing pages to go to the printing press, course there really was nothing like the internet at that time so it was all about print and we were often doing 144 page books you know so it was a huge staff close to 300 people on the masthead between editorial art production all of that and the voice was and I intend to keep it the kind of place where you could start in a job like proofreading ads and eventually end up as a contributing writer, and then in my own case, the managing editor after all this time. And it's quite nice, actually, with the return that the new owners actually wanted to go back to people that used to work there, because I think it's important to retain a little bit of the DNA of the paper, right? Oh, there's no doubt about it. The Voice has been around since 1955, so that tradition, that post-war excitement that was in New York, whether it was in the arts or politics, was what gave birth to the voice. And of course, Norman Mailer, the novelist, was one of the three founders. So that kind of tradition of not only being aware of the culture, but also being very involved in what was happening in the nation as a whole is what the voice has been about since 1955. So when the new owner decided he was going to restart the press, we discussed, well, what do we do in print? And I very much emphasize that the Village Voice archives, because the voice was often there covering issues first, whether it was gay rights, whether it was who's the worst landlord and how can people possibly afford to live in this stupidly expensive city that is New York, the voice was always there first. And so it was really important to delve into the archives. And so as we were preparing this first print edition, there was yet another killing of a black man by police when Dante Wright was shot and killed. And literally with a couple days to go before we went to press, the owner called me and said, hey, I remember when you were showing me archive pages, you showed me a cover where the headline was driving while black. And I said, yes, that's Peter Noel one of our writers in the 90s. And that story was from 1998. 
And Peter was one of the first people, he was kind of reporting on Black Lives Matter before there was such a thing. And he did this long piece about the New Jersey state troopers stopping black drivers at a disproportionately high rate on the New Jersey turnpike and all the altercations and false arrests that that led to. And of course that was 1998. So the owner, Brian Kaye, really wanted to bring that history right up into the present. And Peter Noel wrote a little piece about, yes, I was writing about this in 1998. I couldn't even use the term racial profiling on the cover. The editor at that time thought it was too inflammatory and no one would know what it would mean. If they did figure out what it was, they would think it was too inflammatory. So it's so interesting that voice history comes around every time something happens, I go and look in the archives and I can find us reporting on it 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And Bob, tell us about the print issue that came out last month. I mean, did it change anything in its format or perhaps it was more or less how it used to be really? And another thing, I think it's an excellent timing as well for the return because it's at the same time the New York's actually opening up again as well, right? Yes, and that was one of the things we thought about, and that was one of the things, the headline on the cover is New York's coming back, and so are we. And one of the things I did was I assigned an article to a young writer named Morley Musick, basically to go out and just interview people on the streets of New York and say, how has this last year been? What are you thinking of the future? How are you doing? And he went out and interviewed young couples sitting on a bench in Washington Square Park. He interviewed a man who goes and visits people who are shut-ins, who can't come out. He interviewed a drag queen, just a cross-section of New York, and really got a sense of both the trauma and the pain that people had been through, people who had lost loved ones, people who just were tired of being stuck in their apartments and wanting to get out. And basically, it was a piece that noted the pains and problems of the past year, but also that people, New Yorkers, are pretty optimistic. And in terms of the topics discussed, I think, again, as you were mentioning about the story in the past, talking about racial profiling, I mean, some things never change. And of course, the theme of politics, I think New York's voting for a mayor soon, or at least there's been a lot of discussion about it. Is that one of the hot topics as well? Uh, it absolutely is. In January, when we decided that we were going to start new coverage on the website and also print a quarterly print edition to start, we hope to print a lot more regularly as we move forward. That was one of the first things I did. And I was reminded by another former staffer about a young guy named Ross Barkin, who's done a lot of political coverage, both for The Voice and all different kinds of publications. The kid is a politics junkie. And so I called him and said, hey, Ross, I would love to have someone give us a regular piece on the mayor's race coming up. He really has dug into it. And what we did in the print issue was we printed out a grid with questions asking, are you a democratic socialist? And then we listed all the candidates. And then who would be the best one to vote for? Would it be Andrew Yang? Would it be Eric Adams? Would it be Scott Stringer? Would it be Diane Morales? 
And then also like, you think taxes are too high? This is who you should vote for. Or the New York has had at times a party called the rent is too damn high party. And so we said, if you still feel the rent is too damn high, this is who you should vote for. So we called it mayoral bingo because there are eight people running and actually we just had the first mayoral debate. So it's still pretty wide open. And Ross is trying to basically handicap who he thinks is going to win this, but also who you should vote for and why. Though I have to say, I've decided we probably won't do an endorsement because Village Voice endorsements don't have a great track record. We once endorsed Walter Mondale against Ronald Reagan, and I think it was one of the biggest wipeouts in electoral history here. So some politicians have said the voice endorsement can be the kiss of death. So there you go. So maybe you keep it quiet this time. (laughs) (laughs) And Bob, we're talking here about New York. Of course, the Village Voice is so associated with New York, and perhaps its influence, it shows that New York, I feel, is almost not just for Americans, actually. Here in London, we hear news about the mayoral race over there. And I think that's one of the reasons why the paper is quite influential as well. New York is at the center almost of the world. Well, I mean, New Yorkers certainly like to feel that way. And as I mentioned before, with The Voice starting in 1955, New York was at the center of the world. That post-war America was an economic powerhouse, a powerhouse in every way. So the voice started at the right time in the right place. And I'll give you an example. It is still an arts and cultural center, second to none. And one of the articles we had is by a former voice writer who I really wanted to bring back, Christian Viveras Fonet. And he wrote about Nan Golden, the photographer, who's very famous for her downtown scene, New York photos of couples of the demi-monde, basically. And one of the things she has done recently in a big part of this piece was the fact that she has been going after the Sackler family who hide the huge fortune, this massive fortune they've made off the Oxycontin epidemic, the addictions that spread across the country and killed so many people, destroyed so many lives, and they were making billions. And like a lot of, call them robber barons, they hide that behind philanthropy. And so in addition to the fact that she's having a major kind of retrospective show here in New York, he also wrote about her activist outfit organization called PAIN, P-A-I-N, that is going after trying to expose the fact that these people have made a fortune off of other people's misery. So do we really want them representing us in these houses of civilization in museums and theaters and such? So it's a really powerful piece. And in that same vein, The Voice was one of the first media outlets to ever really try and make a compendium of what landlords are up to Landlords, obviously, there are bad apples in any kind of field that you talk about. And so the voice pioneered what it called the 10 worst landlords. And annually, we would go over these people, and it's like something out of Dickens. You know, they would never repair their buildings. They would evict people literally who were like lying in their beds ill. We actually did a piece once on the Donald Trump organization back in the late 70s evicting a bedridden woman just because they wanted to flip the apartment. Because of course, 
New York real estate has always been expensive. And so anytime you can get a low paying resident out so that you can push up the rent, the worst landlords will constantly be doing that. So we pioneered that. And so we had a woman named Eileen Markey, who was one of the famous, she was an intern of Wayne Barrett. And Wayne Barrett's one of the most, was one of the most tenacious and relentless investigative reporters in anybody's media history. He went after Roy Cohn. He went after the Trumps when it was Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, and his various very shady real estate dealings. He's gone after mayors. He's gone after commissioners. He famously at The Voice had an entire army of interns because Wayne died a few years back. And of course, like everyone else, he knew he was mortal. So one of the things he did in addition to his own investigative reporting was he would bring on young reporters and train them in how to find facts and figures, how to track down what was going on behind the scenes, whether it was in Albany at the state government or at city hall or in businesses. And so Eileen Markey, who was one of his acolytes, did our latest 10 Worst Landlords. So again, the, the voice tradition continues. That was R.C. Baker from The Village Voice. And if you're in New York, please go grab your copy. From the U.S. to Denmark now, where weekly newspaper Weekend Avisen has just been awarded the prize for world's best newspaper design. Monaco's Gabriele Delisanti visited the Copenhagen newsroom and spoke with head designer Katinka Book on what makes the paper's design stand out. Can you tell me how you felt the moment you knew that you won this award? Complete disbelief. <laughs> First of all, I think the nomination was a su complete surprise for me because I I saw that we didn't win any medals and, and I thought, well, we'll just get some honorable mentions and that will be good as well. And I'm still so proud of my team and what we achieved within a year of COVID with people working from home. And then all of a sudden I get a text from a friend at 10 o'clock saying we're nominated and I'm seeing this poster that we're nominated with New York Times, Washington Post, Die Volksrand and also Die Zeit, which is like one of my hero newspapers. I was blown away by the nomination. And then when we won, I think I was just in shock. <laughs> that was Katinka Book, head designer at Vikinavisen, a Danish long-form broadsheet that comes out every Friday. And she's really thrilled because just recently, the paper was awarded the prize for best newspaper design by the Society for News Design. An award Katinka likes to refer to as the Oscars of newspaper design. And to understand how Viking of Eason won this award after being in circulation for centuries, we have to rewind to 2018. It is here that Katinka Book first joined the team and headed significant structural changes to the way the newsroom operated. I actually started here in 2018 at Viking of Eason, the oldest newspaper in the world. And when I started here, it kind of also felt and looked a bit like the old newspaper in the world. But it had a great legacy, no doubt about it. It was extremely classical, very minimalist, very few people producing, very small budgets, no photo editor, can you imagine? And also a work rhythm where the designers were sitting in a newsroom waiting for an editor who kind of waltzed down with a page in their hand saying, who wants to do a page with me? 
And I already picked the picture and I already have the visual idea and they sort of like just made it. And when I started here, I thought, okay, the ambition here that me and Martin Krasnick, the editor-in-chief, we agreed that we wanted the newspaper to be the most beautiful newspaper in the world. I mean, we had a very high ambition. And I said to him, you can't do that with this workflow. It's simply not possible. So it was kind of a revolution. It was not even just a little evolution. It was kind of a revolution saying, okay, first of all, we need new designers, maybe just a few. And we need a photo editor and illustration editor slash. There's only one. And we need to have the designers engaged and they're all brilliant and smart. They need to work closely with the editors and have responsibility to maintain the flow and also prepare that we are moving into a digital age. You know, they need to understand that digital design is not like the enemy and it doesn't have to be boring or something that is pushed upon them that everybody's like thinking is a drag. That's how the atmosphere was at the newspaper. This is only like two and a half years ago, everybody was like, but we're a paper newspaper, we don't need digital. And my argument was more like, it's not that we're going to replace it. Everybody should still love this paper newspaper. It's beautiful and we'll make it even more beautiful and important. And it will stay with you all week. After spending years at Politiken, the country's second most read paper, and with considerable experience in brand management, she decided to bring elements from both worlds when giving Vikanavisen a fresh new look in 2020, the paper's first redesign in over 30 years. The redesign idea was that let's keep everything that is wonderful about this newspaper, let's look into the legacy. This is really a newspaper that people love. A lot of them are long-time subscribers. Even we only have a circulation of 50,000. We have around 250,000 readers in all of Scandinavia. So every paper <laughs> stays a long time and often with a, a lot of people. I said to Martin, I really would like to have this newspaper stand out. I, I, will, I would love to start with the branding of the paper. And let's do that with custom fonts. Let's find a way to do it where we keep the basic DNA, but we also look at the different needs and we bring it into our age, but with a very, very big and respectful nod to the past. So they started by working with graphic designers both at home and in the UK, and commissioned custom fonts inspired by traditional typefaces from the 20s and 30s. She was particularly fond of Knud Egelhat, one of Denmark's first industrial designers. He's best known for designing the font he used on street signs in the district of Gentofte in North Copenhagen. Here, the style is simple, and the letters are well-spaced to ensure good readability the kind of quality Katinka wanted to bring to the pages of Vikanavisen. And on this Friday, as we visit the central Copenhagen newsroom, the paper's editors, writers and graphic designers are enjoying a relaxed afternoon after sending the latest issue to print. And as Katinka flips through this week's edition, she points out how many of the design updates lie in the details. From adding small New Yorker-like cartoons to the narrow lines that run under each byline colored in the paper's signature light blue. Katinka, most of all, appreciates working with a team of experts who specialize in their task. When you start to do something like this newspaper, when you're changing something that people really, really love, you don't throw away everything that is valuable. And I think another thing is really how do you create the paper? 
And you really should let people do what they're best at. I mean, the editors are editing, the writers are still writing. We didn't change that. Let the designers design and let people do what they're best at. This is why they became what they are. But they should do it together and they should communicate. And I think that's really what we're doing here now, which works so beautifully. I mean, everybody's being heard and it's natural for a designer to call the writer and saying, you're writing the story and can I ask you some questions? Or the writers will come down and say, oh, why don't we do something like this? Or what do you think? And it's like, it's a happy collaboration. I think it's so important. From the newsroom of Vikenavisen in Copenhagen, I'm Gabriele Delisanti. Thanks, Gabriele Delisanti. They are speaking with Katinka Book from Wikendavisen. And finally on the show, I had a great chat with Jim Bilton, Managing Director of Westenden Marketing and Brand Lab Research. He recently released a poll he did with people working in media, with questions such as who they think are the people shaping the media business. Jim also shares with me some thoughts about the industry and the challenging year we just had. It was challenging in all kinds of ways in terms of you know, simply getting paper supplies for starters. But then it followed all the way through the supply chain and it varied from country to country as to how many retailers that sell newspapers and magazines were actually open during the lockdown, the periods of lockdown. But there were all kinds of creative issues. How do you do a photo shoot from your office or your garage? How do you brainstorm editorial ideas? There are all kinds of issues. But I think the print magazine market has been remarkably resilient and creative throughout it all and looks as though it's well-placed to come out of it all, but in a different shape that I think it's very much the, the specialist and more entrepreneurial magazine publisher who is well-placed. I think the large companies with the large mainstream brands still have problems and supply chain problems. You said a word that I completely agree with you, which is resilience. I mean, that was definitely the year to be resilient. And you saw there's still a market for people, you know, they want to consume print. I mean, a lot of people, they stayed at home. Perhaps they wanted the physical product, you know, to touch as well. I think there's a big distinction, first of all, between newspapers and magazines. I think newspapers and magazines have very distinct challenges and very different futures. There are instances of newspapers keeping their print product going for longer than they ever anticipated. But I think from a magazine point of view, the consumer still regards, I think, all the research shows as the real thing. For all age groups, the younger age groups, there's more competition for their attention and their time. And there are issues as to how much they're prepared to pay for print. Print is an oasis, an escape from digital, from being on the screen, particularly during lockdown, when we're on the screen all the time, to flick through a magazine away from the screen, you're not multitasking, that me time and the magazine experience is still, I think, very print-based. I very much agree on that one. And, you know, of course, I would like to talk about some of your kind of recent projects. There was one very interesting, the media on media polling, which, you know, there was some, a lot of surprise findings. Tell us a bit more. When did you decide with that idea? Because it's quite interesting to see what, you know, us people that work in the media industry and the print industry think about it, right? Our own industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it started out as a bit, a bit of lockdown fun. 
like most other people, I've been thrashing my Netflix subscription relentlessly, but I got bored watching lots of depressing Scandinavian detectives unearth bodies all over the place. And so I started to look at some classic films. And one of the first ones I hit was Citizen Kane that I hadn't seen for years and years and years. And I thought, well, actually, what other films are there? And gradually this sort of developed and I started comparing notes with other people. And I thought, well, actually, it'd be really interesting to know what people who work in the media business would choose as their favourite. And we asked film, TV series, fictional book, factual book. And then the final question, which is the really interesting one, which is who do you think are going to be the most influential people shaping media in 2021? Each layer of it, each phase of it, it was really interesting. Citizen Kane, for example, didn't feature in the top five. It was number six. And it was all the president's men, which came out as a clear leader. It's the journalist's film about journalism still. And I think most journalists of a certain age hark back to the 1970s as the golden age of journalism. And also some of them you know, would like to be Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman. Personally, I prefer another film about the Washington Post, which is The Post, which came in at number three, because I'm actually, my background is commercial. I'm interested in the business models. And so it's not a pure journalism film. It's, it, it, it's a film about personal decisions, about a woman taking over control of a media organisation. There are all kinds of different things. And of course, as Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks has cornered the market in media films. If you go through everything that he's in, including News of the World, which is his most recent one, which is a weird media Western, where he is a walking podcast who goes out to educate post-Civil War America and to save them from themselves. Still need to watch that one. Talking about the people who influence the media, yeah. were there any surprise findings from the polling about the people mentioned? In some ways, no. The top two you could predict, but not how close they were. And it was just in the end, a couple of votes that separated Mark Zuckerberg from Rupert Murdoch. But it's the views that the media insider people had about them. One of the lovely quotes about Mark Zuckerberg is that I suspect that one of the most powerful men who has ever lived really is as clueless and conscience-free as his public appearances suggest. And I think running through all this is that the view is that Mark Zuckerberg is a very dangerous person because he doesn't really know the implications of what he's doing and doesn't care and yet has immense power to shape the media landscape. Whereas Murdoch is more Citizen Kane, and people were divided about Murdoch. Most people were very negative and saying that he's ruthless and uses his power in very ruthless ways. But there's a whole layer of dynasty that he took over a dynasty. There are people waiting, because one of the other favourite TV programmes is Succession, which clearly is all about Murdoch. So there's a play going on there. But ironically, he is the most fervent defender, for his own reasons, of paid content. And is he going to turn out to be the patron saint of paid content and the only person who's really taken on Facebook and Google? 
and again, used his political influence ruthlessly, particularly in Australia. But he is defending something that we value, which is that people have to pay for quality journalism. And, you know, if our listeners would like to read a bit more about the, the report, can they go just to the, your website? And They can go. Uh, it's not on the website at the moment. It is on the In Publishing website. So In Publishing was our media partner, and we've done this with them using their contact list. So all the detail is on the In Publishing website. That was Jean Bilton there, Managing Director of Westenden Marketing and Brand Lab Research. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Before we go, a little song for you. Patch your boys on social media. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye for me. Go!